want to go ahead and turn our attention to our scripture. And so if you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 21. And Pam Rivera is going to come up and read for us. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word as we hear from it this morning. Pam, I'll pass it off to you. Good morning, church family. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Thank you, Pam. Church, hear the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Father, we come to you this morning and we sit underneath your word. We, right now we stand out of respect for your word because we acknowledge that it is authoritative in our lives. But Father, we want to be under it. We want to submit ourselves to it because we recognize that we do not have hope in ourselves and we do not have the way to flourishing and to life in ourselves. But your word, as you have revealed it through your people and, and your servants like Paul and Peter and the prophets, like your word does give us that way and that light. And so, Father, we, we come to sit underneath it. I pray, Father, that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what you would have for us this morning. Lord, we need you in our brokenness. We need you to help our hearts to be soft, to hear your words for us. And so we ask for that. Pray your blessing and your favor upon it. Uh, our time this morning ask that you would be glorified in all things. We ask these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Church, go ahead and have a seat. All right. So when we last left off in Colossians, Paul was telling us essentially this. If you have been raised up in Christ, so in other words, if you're like Antonio this morning, you've been baptized and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. And Paul has just got done telling us in this letter to the people of Colossae that he wants them to then put on a certain way of living that is in light of this new creation that God is creating and making within us. And so we talked about that in the weeks prior to Easter. But now Paul moves into some of the most practical things in our lives, some of the most fundamental relationships of every single one of our lives and certainly of our community, and that is the family. He singles out this unit with some very specific commands. And it needs to be said that relationships within the family unit are prime battlegrounds for the enemy and for our world. He wants to destroy the family. But I just want to say that right out at the front. He wants to destroy the family. Our culture wants to destroy the family because the family is anchored in creation. The family is anchored in God's intent for society. In fact, society is birthed out of the family unit the way that God has intended it to be. His mandate to be fruitful and to multiply, to have dominion and to bear his image, all of that is birthed out of the family unit. Man and woman coming together as one flesh and having children that raised up underneath that in the way of the Lord. This is his intent. The family is ordained and given to us as a picture of the gospel. And so as a result of that, the enemy has sought to assault the family. From the moment of the fall all the way up until today, 
from every, every single conceivable direction. The family unit in our culture is in decay. It's in decay. To the point that in many ways, we've lost the vision for what a healthy family can actually be. And as a result, the hope that we can find life in the family has been lost. The family's definitions have been changed. Its value has been minimized. Its purpose has been shifted. Its very foundations have been eroded. Even in the church, we would be foolish to believe that this has not seeped its way into the church. I see it all the time in counseling. It has seeped its way into the church and even within the church where we should be a shining light of God's grace and goodness in the family, we are experiencing the same kind of decay, the same challenges. And listen, I know that many in this room, many that are listening online, you've got a family that is full of enmity, and strife, and challenges, angst, confusion in regards to your relationship and how you should be and how you should discipline your kids. Like, like, like some in this room are probably teetering on whether or not you should get a divorce. Like, I know that's happening. Because I have the opportunity to counsel. Some of you have, have experienced the glorious goodness and flourishing that God intends in a family that is done the way that God intends it to be. But I know that there are some who are struggling. And I know we could continue to go on about all of those things. But again, where we should be a shining light, we are experiencing the same kind of decay within the family. And what Paul is leading us into in this text is the desire to see that being healed, restored, the brokenness bound up, and the family within the church be established as a bright light for the gospel of Jesus Christ to flourish from. But before we jump into the specifics, there are a few things that we need to make note of. First, you will only see healing for what you are willing to die for, or die to. Now, what do I mean by this? simply means this. If we see God's demands and we see God's example and we refuse to align with that, there will be no healing for you. There will be no healing for your family. So if you are in this place right now and you've been living your life in accordance with how you think you should and you've been thinking about this is the way family should look like and my relationships should look like between me and my spouse, me and my friends, me and my coworkers, me and my brothers and sisters in Jesus, me and my parents, me and my children, if you have been the source of information for how to engage that and you see that it is not what it can be or what it should be, you're not going to find the flourishing that Jesus calls you to be able to have unless you're willing to recognize the fault is in you. And you have to change. And the only way that we can change is to align ourselves with Jesus. And that means we have to die to our own ideas and our own ways of doing even family and relationships. Amen? Like we've got to lay that stuff down. And so listen, if you're struggling in that space, you just need to know you're not going to find healing in your relationships unless you're willing to do those relationships and navigate those relationships the way Jesus would want you to. You won't find healing. What you will find is more of what the world gets, not what the world promises. And what the world gets is wreckage, relational wreckage. So that's one thing we need to say right off at the front. 
The second thing we need to acknowledge is this. This is for the single as well. If you are here this morning and you're single, maybe you're hoping one day to find a spouse and have a family, or, or maybe you, you've struggled, you're a widow, or you, uh, you, you've lived a long life without being married. Listen, this is for you as well because the redeeming reality of the gospel is that you were called into the family of God. And so all of the principles that we're going to talk about in this apply to you as you relate to your spiritual mothers and fathers, as you relate to your spiritual children who you engage and you share the gospel with or you disciple, as you engage with your spiritual brothers and sisters within the family of God. So don't think that when Paul moves to talk about the family unit that just because you're not married that this doesn't apply to you. It absolutely applies to you. And singleness within the church is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's not something to look to try to get away from. It's something to pray that the Lord would use and lead you into as long as you're there. And to be the kind of believer that he wants you to be in your singleness. And so listen, this is not a sermon series. The next few weeks as we talk about these things that should do anything but encourage you to live out these same principles in your life as a single in the church. Last, we have to build a foundation for our understanding. Our culture has so eroded every fundamental reality and truth of the family that we are oftentimes like fish swimming in the ideas of the world and we can't distinguish when we're swimming through a puddle versus the ocean. We're just swimming and we don't know the difference between And the commands that Paul is giving us in Colossians and in Ephesians 5 and 6, which we're going to be in in the next few weeks, they are absolutely not attainable for us if we apply our cultural understanding to the words that are in these texts. Words like submission, love, discipline, provoking. If you apply the cultural dictionary and definition to those terms, this makes no sense. None whatsoever. In fact, it's something to run away from. But we are not going to apply the cultural definition to these terms. We're going to apply God's definition to these terms. And that's really, really important. And that means that our foundation, before we can ever talk about something as, as hard to deal with and as big as a landmine as the word submission, we need to be looking to him. We have to lay a foundation And that foundation, brothers and sisters, is built not upon my words, not upon my wisdom. It is built upon God himself. He is relational perfection. Within himself, he is relational perfection. Only by seeing him can we understand the life and the beauty of what Paul is talking about and what he's calling us to, to, to enter into. Only then can we hope to have the vision for marriage, parenting, relationships within the body that are good and that are flourishing. So to find relational healing, we need to look to him. And we need to look to his relational perfection. Again, you're not going to find this in the culture. You're not going to find this by watching little women You're not going to find this by watching Pride and Prejudice and how um, Elizabeth Bennett and Mr. Darcy come together. And some of you have no idea what those movies are because they're for old people, right? Some of you, you're not going to find it by watching Twilight or any of these other weird romantic movies that are around or rom-coms that are out there. You're not going to find what relational flourishing looks like in this culture. You won't find it. 
It will make all kinds of promises to you about what you might be able to have and what the ideals are, and it won't lead to those ideals, and it won't lead to those promises. We have to look to Jesus. And that is solely in, specifically, the Trinity. That's a fun topic, right? One that we all fully grasp. Now, this is extremely complicated, and I get it. Like, this is a very difficult thing for us to discuss, because it seems so far out there and so far hard for us to grasp at times, it's just easier not to think about it. But yet, at the same time, God has revealed some of the infinite mystery of the Trinity to us so that we could see what he's doing and how he wants us to relate in our lives. And so here's a couple of things. I'm not going to go into a specific, uh, full-on sermon about the Trinity, but there's a couple things that we need to know about the Trinity before we jump into this. Number one, God is one. Absolute God is one. We are a monotheistic faith. We believe in one God. Yahweh is his name in the Old Testament. But we also believe that God is three. Now, how can this be? How can this be? How can God be one and yet three? And here's the thing that's challenging. I was thinking about like giving analogies and giving pictures and all kinds of stuff. They're all broken. All right? They're all broken. Like, there is not a really good picture in this world of this reality. I mean, we can see certain glimpses of it, right? Like, so for example, I am a body and a soul, which is me. Both of them are me. Both are different. They're distinct. They're, they're two different things that make up a whole. And so there's certain images that we can see certain components of the Trinity, but it's just really hard for us to grasp. And we need to understand that it's because he is infinite and we are not. Right? So, so if we get to the place where we say that God is fully understandable, here's what I would tell you. He's not God. Because that means that you can fully grasp something that is way beyond us. And yet, this is how he has revealed himself to be. God is one. God is three. And the three are each fully God. You said, well, that seems redundant, but it's not. Some people get this confused. This isn't a picture of, of God putting on different masks at different times in history, but they're each fully God. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit, they're fully God. In essence, in every single way, equal. Each person is distinct from the others. They're distinct. Next, each is related to the other eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What's crazy about this, you think about this reality, eternally together, eternally related to each other as Father, Son, and Spirit. Like That's hard for us to grasp because we are bound by time. God is not bound by time. He's outside of it. He's in eternity, which is, think this, God the Father never was introduced to God the Son. There was no moment they did not fully know one another. And there was no moment in all of eternity that the Father, Son, and the Spirit didn't relationally connect with one another in exactly the same way that they do today. That's just crazy to think about. The Father and the Son, they never had a beginning to their relationship. We, every single one of us, only understand relationship with beginning. Right? Like every relationship we've ever had had a beginning. That is not the case with the, God, with the Trinity. It's just so far beyond us. Each has a role within that relationship. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they have always functioned within those roles. Now, here's why this is important. One of the biggest things in this, and one of the biggest keys that this brings us to, is that God is eternally relational before anything else was made. Before anything else was made. This absolutely has to be true. Because if there was no self-contained, perfect relationship within the Trinity, within God himself, God could not have loved before he made us. You ever thought about that? Because who is he going to love? Who is, who is the love going to go towards? How would he even know what love is if he didn't love within himself before he ever made us? And if that wasn't true, then if he needed us to experience love, then he's dependent upon us. This is not true of God. He is self-contained, which means in eternity he was in a perfect, he needed nothing. I hate to break it to you. You don't complete him. Right? Let me, you know, that, that line, right? You, you don't complete him. He is complete without us. Before he ever made us, he is complete. He doesn't need us for anything. Because if he could love before he made us, and if he needed us to love, then he would be dependent upon us for part of his character. So God is our guiding star. Our relationships with one another and him is to reflect, to copy, to replicate, and ultimately be founded upon him as a relational God. So while we're going to get into the things like submission within the Trinity in the weeks to come, the foundation for all things relational, all things that lead to relational flourishing is defined by him, not by what we see or what we feel or what we think. It is defined by him. In every single point of your life that has experienced relational brokenness is evidence that you need him. It's evidence that you can't do this on your own. So three relational things that I want to focus on this morning. Number one, within the Trinity, God is mutually self-giving love. He gives mutual self-giving love within the Trinity. Scripture is more silent about the love of the Father and the Son towards the Holy Spirit, but we know that the Holy Spirit is love. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 13. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, we see that the Spirit loves but Scripture is much more explicit about the love between the Father and the Son. Look at some of the ways that it's described. John 14, verse 31. I do, this is Jesus speaking, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So that the world may know that I love the Father. So we see that eternally, Jesus has loved the Father. Now, we already talked about how do we define that by the way he wants to define it, not the way we want to define that. We see the same thing towards the Son. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. More important than the presence of the love within the Trinity is the quality of the love within the Trinity. The kind of love that we see within the Trinity. The love that is expressed between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that is perfect. It is perfectly patient, perfectly unabsorbed by self, perfectly humble, perfectly kind, 
perfectly self-giving, perfectly focused on the other members of the Trinity. Imagine a relationship that looked like that. Like perfectly patient. What we recognize in ourselves is by default, this is not true about any of us. By default, this is not true about any of us. Our love is oftentimes self-centered. We love as long as people help us meet our goals or as long as they fulfill us or as long as they satisfy us or as long as they pour into us or as they meet our expectations. It may not start that way, but it tends to always move that way because that is love. That is our kind of love. That is not his kind of love. And we said this a few weeks ago, but love within the the Trinity is characterized by a mutual self-giving love. The Father and the Son orbiting around the Spirit. The Spirit and the Son orbiting around the Father. The Father and the Spirit orbiting around, or the Father and the Son orbiting around the Spirit. Their interests, their desires, their will, they're always in this space together. Seeking to love one another, to die to themselves for the other. This is a beautiful picture of what a relationship should look like. Next, we see mutual glorification. John 17, John 16 talk about the pursuit within the Trinity to glorify one another. So it means to exalt one another. So Jesus is always trying to exalt the Father, always trying to exalt the Spirit. The Spirit is always trying to exalt the Son, always trying to exalt the Father. The Father is always trying to exalt the Son and exalt the Spirit. Like they're constantly trying to glorify one another. And there's this beautiful picture of what we can begin to see. And I love how Cornelius Plantanga, how he describes it. I want to read this quote. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they glorify each other. At the center of the universe, self-giving love is the dynamic currency of the Trinitarian life of God. I know that's a big statement, but, but just keep listening because it's really, really beautiful. The persons within God, so the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, exalt, commune with, and defer to one another. When early Greek Christians spoke of this It was called perichoresis in God. They meant that each divine person harbors the others at the center of its being. In constant movement or overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the others. So here's the thing. Do you know what an English word is that we get out of the word perichoresis? Choreography. It's a dance. Have you ever seen like a, a, a dance where you whole, have a whole bunch of people on a stage and they're all moving in unison together and I almost just did dance and then realized that's a bad idea. But have you ever seen that where they usually like, how do they not run into each other and how do they do that? And that's amazing. And it's this beautiful choreography of people moving in unison all together. Like this is what happens within the Trinity at all times. It's this beautiful dance, this eternal dance between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit where they flow around one another, in and out and around in perfect harmony and perfect trust and perfect love and communication, unity of mind, unity of heart, never contradicting one another, never misunderstanding one another, never at odds with one another, never wishing that the other one would do their part, never withholding something from the other, never resentful, never fearful, never demanding, never domineering. Anybody want to enter into a relationship like that? How many of you have ever experienced a relationship that doesn't have those things other than with God? Like our relationships are full of this stuff. 
Like it's why there's so much havoc and wreckage in our lives oftentimes because our relationships, not just within our relationship with our spouse and our kids and our, our parents, but within our, our friends and those that we know, like our lives are full of this stuff. But it's not the case with him. I want us to get a picture of this eternal dance so that we can have an anchor in our minds. Because part of the gospel, part of the gospel is that God in Jesus, is inviting us into this dance. He's bringing us back into the dance to to bring us into that relationship with the Trinity. And not only that, but then to bring that into restoring the relationships that we have with one another. This is such an amazing thing. So we see relational perfection in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Another foundational piece that we need to see is that Paul is writing specific commands in Colossians to the wives, to the husbands, and to children because there is an assumption of relational brokenness. Again, don't miss this. From the fall, none of us are capable of relating to one another without the effects of brokenness, sin, and the curse that is within us. So young people... You're not married yet. Maybe you haven't had a lot of difficult relationships in your life. Like There is going to be a point where you realize that there is always something that is keeping you from having perfect relationships with other people. There's always a level of mistrust and there's always a level of of question and resentment and all these types of things. Outside of Jesus Christ, you cannot, we by default, cannot have good relationships with other human beings. Like perfect relationships with others. We can have okay relationships, but not the kind of relationships that God wants us to have. This is evidence in the fall. We go all the way back to Genesis, when out of his perfect relationship, God created man and woman in perfect relationship, that mirrored his own, two is one. When they rebelled, when they fell, it broke that relationship. And look at the curse that came upon them in Genesis chapter 3. And before I read it, if you've never read this before, see the effects of the fall and ask yourself the question, do you ever see these things in your relationships? And if you have read this before, try to read it with new eyes. Genesis chapter 3. And God said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. Man and woman were made perfect. In perfect love, in perfect relationship, no shame. Man was made, and then he was brought a helper. And that's not a negative term. The exaltation goes to the one that's being helped, right? Not the, not the, 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 the I'm sorry, the exaltation goes to the one who is helping, not the one who is being helped. And so when, when you hear that, that's not a negative thing. It means that you're, the, the men around you need your help. Like children need the help of an adult. 
Some of you feel like your husband's a child at times. I hope that's not the case for me, but nonetheless, like that's the case. That's the reality. Like when you think of that term, it's not negative because we need help. And God gave us women to do that in our lives. But all of this was broken once sin came in. The woman would no longer desire to help, but be the one to rule. By default, and the husband's default would be to want to rule over his wife. And that is horribly destructive if you've ever seen it play itself out in this world. Horribly destructive. And it's not because God curses them. It's because this curse is now in us. That the sin that is in us, this is the way we view the relationships around us. It's the, the direct way that we see everything in our lives. And each of Paul's commands goes directly against these cracks in us, these broken pieces in us. But we have to come to grips that our wisdom and our strength, our nature will always be at odds with God's design. It will always be at odds with God's design. If we just live out according to how we want to live, and we'll always be at odds with one another relationally. There will be no dance. No dance between me and my brothers and sisters in Christ. No dance between my spouse and my kids and my parents. And, and any of the relationships we have, there won't be that dance. What there will be instead is posturing and defensiveness and miscommunication and misunderstanding, all of which we have had. I want you to ponder this week. How has this brokenness worked itself out in your relationships? Think about it. In all of your relationships, not just with your spouse, for those of you who are single, with your friends, with those you've dated in the past, with, with your parents, with your siblings, with your coworkers, with your boss. I mean, just think about all of the relationships that you have with people and think about how the brokenness that we're talking about has entered into those relationships. How it's entered in with anger and frustrations and wrong expectations and, and how that's made you get mad at the people that are around you. Maybe you get mad at your wife because she didn't clean the way that you wanted her to or because she doesn't bring up home enough money from her job. Or maybe you get mad at your, house or your husband because he doesn't serve the way that you want him to or he doesn't work hard enough. Maybe you think he's lazy. And you get mad at your friend or your coworker because they don't meet your expectations or because they, they frustrate you or they say something that's hurtful. Listen, if we want restoration, we have to truly examine where this plays out in our lives because we cannot invite the Lord into a problem if we refuse to acknowledge the problem. Does that make sense? You can't invite the Lord into a problem until you acknowledge the problem. Our tendency in a broken relationship or in struggling relationship, is to always see the other person as the problem. And I want to really, really press you against that. We look to ourselves first. The scripture says, like, you can't take the splinter out of a brother or sister's eye until you take the log out of your own. And so if you see that relational brokenness in you and in your relationships, 
You need to look to yourself first. Don't put that weight upon your spouse. Don't put that weight upon your friends. Don't put that weight upon your parents. Don't put that weight upon your siblings. You put it on you first. And you trust the Lord to do a work in them. Because if your eyes are too fixed on them, you'll never see you. And you'll never see the brokenness in you. And you won't be able to acknowledge what the Lord wants to see healed. It's interesting. I think there's an added challenge in Genesis where the curse of the thistles and thorns extends itself into the tending of our relationships, not just the tending of this ground. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you're talking with somebody and you communicate and you feel like you communicated perfectly clearly and then you find out later they totally misunderstood you, probably because they're not talking to you anymore. Anybody had that experience? Like, does there not just feel like there's constant thorns and thistles when we're trying to relate to people? It's like, I'm trying to be clear. I'm trying to say things. I'm trying to be loving. And it's like, there's always tension. There's always something that gets in the way. I think that the thorns and the thistles are there into the soil of our relationships. And here's what that means. It's hard work to tend the soil of relationships. It does not come easy. And it does not come natural. But... The good news, the good news that we're going to get to in the weeks to come as we talk about what God is trying to lead us into is that there is relational hope. The Son was sent out of his relational perfection to do two things for us. One, to restore our relationship with God. By his self-giving sacrifice, Jesus is taking our curse upon himself. He is placing our debt upon his shoulders Reconciling us back to God by the blood of the Son, we are invited back into the dance. It has to start there because you and I cannot do the things that Paul calls us to do in Colossians and Ephesians on our own. You have to have the Spirit of God. Have to. The curse has to be reversed. The ability to mirror his relational perfection cannot happen unless he changes something fundamental about us. We call that a new creation. Amen? He has to make us a new creation. He has to begin to stir in us that work. Remember, the old is gone and the new has come, and it is continually coming. And if you're here sitting next to a spouse or to a friend or to a parent or to a child that that relationship is in disarray. You cannot expect or, or, or ask God to make your relationship better unless your relationship with him is first addressed. Can't. I've seen so many people come here and they say, man, I'm in the church because my relationship with my spouse or a friend is in disarray and I believe that maybe, maybe he can fix it. No, no, he needs to, he, he needs to let's just be honest, you need to die to start that fixing process. You need to die to yourself and die to your way of living and die to your way of relationships before you can ever hope to see him begin restoration in your marriage or in your relationships. The old has to go and the new has to come and we have to be led by the Spirit of God and Jesus gave us this hope by the work he accomplished on the cross. He invited us back in, and he invited us to be reconciled to God. He took our debt. 
But not only did he do that, he also came to restore our relational hope to one another. Because he now gives to us the relational example between himself and the church. Remember the text I read earlier? He says, the, the Father, uh, as, as the Father has loved me, so do I love you. We now have this beautiful picture between the groom and the bride of Christ. So Jesus and his church, where we can now begin to see what relationships should really look like. And that becomes the foundation that can lead us into all kinds of flourishing in our relationships and all kinds of healing in your relationship and with the relationships that you have with others. He's inviting us back into the dance. And so as a result, we now have the chance to see that dance replicated in our marriages and in our relationships with our kids and in our relationships with one another. Do you want that? I, I do, and I want it for all of you, because the more that I've seen God do that in the relationships between me and my wife and me and, and, and those that are close to me, like I see the joy that is there. And this is what he's inviting us into. And so I want to leave you today with a couple of things to ponder. First, I want you to ponder and think this week about the dance just ponder, what does that look like between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? What, what, what should that look like? like how, how does that play itself out in their relationships? And how do you see that in Scripture? Talk about that in your, at your dinner tables and your lunch tables. But then also consider how the relational brokenness has affected you in your life. Listen, you may feel like your thing, things are good right now in your relationships. They can be better. Can I just be honest? They can be better. I promise. And so just evaluate, consider, like, where is that brokenness there? Where's the brokenness that you won't experience when you're in heaven? The brokenness you won't experience with a perfect relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. How has relational brokenness seeped into your relationships? And how and where do you want God to restore? We all have those moments, don't we? We've all got those relationships that we wish, listen, that they're full of regret. Unless you're over the age of, or unless you're under the age of 15, I'm guessing we all have relationships that are full of regret. Finally, if you are experiencing relational brokenness this morning in your life, and you have not yet been delivered and rescued, redeemed, reconciled, freed, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, if you've not yet confessed him to be Lord of your life, you have no hope of seeing relational healing. None. No matter what the world would promise you, it's not going to be able to help you. Just look at the relationships of this world. Is that what you hope to find advice and direction from? No, no, only in Jesus Christ. Because the fact of the matter is, in the world, you're still living out of your brokenness and your sin, no matter what. But he's inviting you into something greater to submit to his rightful rule in your life, to have his wrath taken off of your shoulders and invite you to be reconciled into a perfect relationship with him, which can then become the example of you having relationships with the people that are around you. So I want to encourage you this morning, like you don't know Jesus, you haven't put that confession to Jesus. Like He is there. He's there for you. 
And we'll have an opportunity in a few moments for you to respond, but I want you to ponder that. But before we do that, I want to shift gears for a minute. I want to shift gears to a time of communion. Because communion in the Last Supper and, and, and this moment in our service is a reminder of a feast between a bride and a groom and what Jesus has done. And it's, it's the reconciling that we've been talking about and, and the symbol of that reconciliation that we've been talking about. If you didn't pick up the elements as you came in, you can go ahead and raise your hand up. But I was thinking this morning, actually in my time before we came here just in prayer, uh, there was a story that came into my mind. And, and I don't know why I felt like the Lord was leading me to share this story. I hope and I believe that it's because the Spirit knows that there's people here that need it. But you know, so often, for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, we come to this weekend and we come to moments in the church, we come to Jesus very aware of all of our failures, don't we? Very aware of all of the ways we have not been faithful. Very aware of all of the sins that we have had inside of our heads, inside of our hearts. And if you're like me in those moments, sometimes isn't it easy to want to stay at a distance from him? Well, I, I just had this image of myself and, and thinking about uh, the, the moment where after Jesus raised from the dead and Peter had denied Jesus three times in his greatest moment of need. And, and after he had raised from the dead, Jesus invites Peter to breakfast. Right? You remember that point? I mean, they're in the boat and he's on the shore and he, he says, come have breakfast with me. And, and Jesus just sits there. And, and I just thought to myself, how many times I would just be content to stand at a distance and just watch. But that's not what Jesus calls Peter to. Jesus calls Peter to sit with him. The one who betrayed him, to sit with him. Well, I don't know what you've done this week, but have you betrayed Jesus three times? I don't think probably you have. And maybe you feel like you have. But the beauty of that story is Jesus still says, come and have breakfast with me. And they come and sit with me. Come and eat with me. And then I thought of the, another picture of one of the worst people in the Bible, a man named Zacchaeus. Before he ever met Jesus, he heard of Jesus coming. He just wanted to see Jesus. And I think so many of us, man, like we just stand at a distance. We're like, if I could just get a glimpse of him, that's enough. Because I know I'm too dirty. He'll never recognize me. He'll never want to sit by me. He'll never want to be with me. But if I can just see him, that'll be enough. And I love that story because Zacchaeus climbs up on a tree. And Jesus is walking in and he says, hey, Zacchaeus. I mean, can you imagine what Zacchaeus is thinking? This vile excuse of a man. You imagine what Zacchaeus thinks? Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to eat at your house today. So I just want to encourage you this morning. Like if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes we need to be reminded that the beauty of the relational perfection that God has invited us into and the work that he has done is a covenant that no matter how many times you screw up and how many times you fail, he still wants to sit with you. By name. And I could look across and start naming all of your names. He wants to sit with you. And he knows your name. 
And he knew all of those failures before you ever confessed him as Lord. Isn't that wonderful? And he still took you. And so when we come to communion this morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have confessed Jesus to be Lord, those who believe with all their heart that he was raised from the dead, that he celebrated last week, when we come to this moment of communion, I just want you to be reminded of the assurance that you have. And so I want you to just take a moment, close your eyes and bow your heads, and I want you to confess the worst of your sins this week to him. You know them. So does he. Confess them by name in the darkest, grossest parts of your heart. Lay them before Jesus this morning. Jesus, as I think about this moment that we have, our relationship with you was non-existent. And we were the problem. And yet, while we were still enemies, You came and died for us that we might enter into relationship with you again. And you have promised that if we're faithful to just, if, we're, if we just confess our sins, then you will be faithful to forgive us our sins. And I pray, Father, this morning for my brothers and sisters that are in this room that may be weary, they may be frustrated, they may be hurting, they may be broken. They may be full of doubts and fears and anger and, and relational brokenness all over the place. Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength by your spirit to lay those things before you and to abide in your love that nothing that they just confessed to you was a surprise to you. And yet, in your love, you still want to sit with them. You know their name. Thank you for that. I pray that you'd help us to abide in that love.